For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Aaron. I've got a special bonus Friday episode for you with McKay Coppins, who is a political writer for BuzzFeed. People may remember he wrote a story about Trump a couple years ago that really pissed Trump off. In fact, I would say no one has more doggedly pursued Trump than McKay Coppins. Therefore, I wanted to get this up very quickly because anyone who has followed the Trump campaign knows uh, a week is uh, years uh, in terms of news cycles there. So uh, very special thanks to MailChimp for making this happen. They allow us to do special episodes like this on short notice. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's McKay Coppins. Welcome, McKay Coppins. Thanks for having me. So you you are a uh, political reporter at BuzzFeed. Is your life like on double speed during during an election year is this year like a bad good year in your life um, in that way oh yeah yes <laughs> well yeah. it's like so i did this in 2012 that was my first presidential campaign that i covered and yeah. i also covered it for buzzfeed i left yep. newsweek to join ben smith there and back then i was married but didn't have any kids and my wife was working and it was like fine she didn't really mind that like i would disappear but like Four years later, now we have two kids. We have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and it's like much more obvious how insane this like doing this job is. Yeah. Um, but I think like the depressing thing about this, start. Let's start this interview off with the worst part of my job. Yeah. The, the depressing thing about being a political journalist is that like you really do plan your life around these like four-year increments. Yeah. Like, it's like being like a World Cup super fan. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're we're like. Every four years, you have like the huge thing that you write about, and everyone's paying attention, and you're you throw all your energy into it. And like we would plan like having our children around that, you know, right. like it's like you make huge life decisions around these like presidential campaigns, and then like at your darkest points, you realize how sad and pathetic that is. <laughs> so I'm curious what the last time you did this was like. Like I hadn't thought about Mitt Romney. Until like for <laughs> for about three years, he had not crossed my mind. It's amazing how different things are right now. Yeah. And I'm wondering what was the experience of covering a fairly respectful, heartwarming, <laughs> if ineffective, <laughs> political campaign. I mean, it just literally, it's like a different job. Like, it's like yeah. I changed careers. Like, I was a political reporter in 2012, and now I like work on an oil tanker. So you what, know? Like, what it's were like you a do- totally different life. What right? were you doing four years ago today? When did you start traveling with Romney? I started traveling right from the beginning. The the first week before January, I got on a Romney campaign bus with a bunch of other reporters that traveled around New Hampshire with him. Yeah. And basically for the most of that year, I was on his campaign charter plane and I was, you know, like going yeah. to every one of his events. And are you like going up to like Yale grizzled CNN reporter and saying like, how are you doing this? Or like, 
How 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 did you figure out what to do once yeah. you were on that bus? No, I I totally played out my like complete you know like inexperience. <laughs> like I remember the very that first trip in New Hampshire in January of 2012. I remember sitting next to a wire reporter who had been doing this for a long time, and he was like giving me all of his you know like tricks of the trade, like make sure you call your wife before you get drunk every night, and be sure to <laughs> I don't get drunk, yeah. but like that's the general you know, and like be sure to pack more underwear than you think you need and always blah, blah, blah. And then like basically, I think that in 2012, it was really helpful that I was A, totally inexperienced with this and B, from this cat video website that was just now doing news because like everyone kind of took pity on me. And that included like people in the Romney campaign, like senior strategists would kind of like be like, ah, this kid, like, I'll give him 10 minutes to talk to him. <laughs> so know? what was the vibe from the other end? Like, what was BuzzFeed as a, like, emerging cat video empire <laughs> at the time? They've hired you. They're putting significant resources. Mm-hmm. That's a full-time employee for a year, basically, following right. around Mitt Romney. What do they want in return for that investment? I mean, the thing is, like, Ben Smith came from a fairly traditional journalism background. I mean, he was a blogger right before he came to BuzzFeed, but he had worked for, like, the New York Observer and had written for a lot of newspapers, New York Daily News. And he wanted, like, scoops. Like, his whole yeah. thing was, like, just break news. It can be the tiniest scooplet, but we just want new information. And, like, I actually really appreciated that because his whole thing was, like, look, like, I don't care about aggregation. I don't care about writing the thing that everyone else is writing. And also there's a certain genre of campaign journalism of writing the day story, which is like, this is what the candidate did today. And it's like a few quotes from his speeches and like some atmospheric stuff. Like he was like, I don't need any of that. Like, I just want new information. So like short little scooplets and then like we'll occasionally take big swings like profiles or or features or whatever. Well, let's talk about the profiling element. That's sort of where the writerly part comes in, I guess. So how did those go down? The thing I will say about politics is that like, because it's such a competitive beat, like there's yeah. so much political reporting yeah. and like relatively little news. I mean, not not like no news, but like everyone is competing for the same story. I found that in a way it helped my writing very early on because like I realized like, okay, I'm on this bus with 30 other reporters. They're all going to file off this event. One way to like set my thing apart will be to like add a little bit of color, you know, be a little creative with it. And like, you know, there were a lot of misses there. Like sometimes I would like try something creative and Ben would be like, eh, this doesn't really work, you know? Yeah. As that went on, I got better at like figuring out where to pick my spots. I'd been writing a lot about Mitt Romney's Mormonism. That was the other edge I had because I'm yes, a Mormon. Because you're so a Mormon. So I had that window into Romney's worldview that no other reporter had. How did you make, like when you first got on the bus where you're like, I'm a Mormon. No, <laughs> it was actually really funny because I don't know and never did know Mitt Romney personally, but I grew up in Massachusetts. So like there's a pretty small world of Massachusetts yeah, Mormons. I was going to say, um, how many Mormons are there even live in Massachusetts? Really not a lot. I mean, yeah. there's like some, but like less than 1% of the population. Like, Did you, you know? know lots of other kids who were Mormons growing up? No, in my high school, there were like, I think like three other Mormons. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, which was actually, I, I actually like that experience. Like, I'm glad I didn't grow up in a place like Utah just because I'm like, you know, a straight white guy. Like, it was like my one experience, like a little glimpse at what it's like to be different yeah. <laughs> from other people, yeah. which I think has helped me a little bit in like how I, you know, see things and cover politics. Was that important to you? Yeah. To see a Mormon candidate? No, it was. It absolutely was. I mean, like, it was a big moment in like, 
the history of the Mormon faith. So it was like a weird, it was like a weird experience. I mean, I felt like I understood Mitt Romney better than other reporters in certain ways because I totally understood his like tortured relationship with his faith and how to make it part of his campaign or not. And like he hated talking about it publicly because he knew a lot of voters were repelled by it. But at the same time, it was this huge part of his life. But it's weird because I had a lot of empathy for that. And like, I felt like that empathy was in a lot of my writing about his religion, but it created a more antagonistic relationship between me and his campaign because his campaign, just as a matter of political strategy, for most of the year, their plan was to just never talk about Mormonism or talk about it as little as possible. So I was like that annoying, pesky reporter who was constantly asking them questions about like, what does Mitt Romney think about this esoteric debate inside of Mormonism? Right. (laughs) The relationship between the Mormon church and journalism has always been sort of fraud. <laughs> yes, So <that's> true. <laughs> you went to Brigham Young uh-huh. University, and is that where you first got involved in journalism? No, in high school I did a lot of journalism. Oh, okay. um, I always just had this like very... Um, I don't know what like combative approach to journalism. <laughs> like in high school, I turned my like high school newspaper into a tabloid and like immediately started getting in trouble. Uh, but like I was at a liberal suburban Boston high school where right. like they had like a lot of tolerance for that. Whereas I imagine at Brigham it was Young, a little bit less of that. <laughs> there's a little less like there's a little less First Amendment going uh, on. Yeah, well, they're like a lot less. I mean, the thing is, it's a private religious college and. The official campus newspaper is an official campus. It's run by the communications department of the school. I mean, I became the editor of the paper. It's called the Daily Universe. But I was just a constant thorn in the side of like the – I feel bad. In retrospect, you know how like everyone who goes to college, like especially journalists, I feel like pick these huge fights and like everything seems so important and dramatic at the time. And in retrospect, you're like, man, that didn't matter. (laughs) Well, I think the part – I mean I apologize for um, like taking you as the like first Mormon I've ever gotten to talk about. No, let's talk about it. I'm in. (laughs) But I'm kind of curious because I think journalism is often about starting trouble and kind of like – putting people in power in uncomfortable positions right. and a lot of religious institutions are not encouraging of rabble rousing. Of course, yeah. And I'm wonder- no power structure likes journalists, like, really, right? Like <laughs> when you're asked to sort of uphold these moral yeah. standards in your everyday life, but you're also a rabble rouser, how does that work? I mean, like the thing about I think any religion is that people have to find a way to like make it work with their worldview, right? And yeah. like, so for me... I, this is going to make me sound like a crazy person, but like I liked the like radical elements of early Mormonism, like the Joseph <laughs> Joseph Smith, you know, the, yeah. the founding prophet was a radical. Like, yeah. he, I mean, he was a an abolitionist. He like started this like religion, claimed to see God and Jesus, and like led a trek across the country. Yeah. I mean, it was like he ran for president, like this crazy protest. But like those elements of Mormon history are like really compelling to me. And it was always the the high ideal was always in pursuit of truth. Right. I need to make clear, like, yeah. this is not how the majority of like the BYU administration would, would <laughs> yeah, view things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, like, I thought the investigative journalism was like perfectly aligned with like pursuing spiritual truth. So, <laughs> man, I, I actually just kind of want to like sit here and talk to you about Joseph Smith for a while. I, have you ever read um, uh, No Man Knows My History? Yes. Oh, yeah. That book is. Oh, yeah. A lot of times I feel like the Mormon church gets offended at really good nonfiction. I'm like, that book is awesome. <laughs> Like, if you read that book, you'd be like, Joseph Smith is like the like no, greatest I, I Wikipedia actually... <laughs> story in history. 
<laughs> I agree with that. Well, actually, uh, Richard Bushman uh, at Columbia did a great biography that came out, I think, 2005, called Rough Stone Rolling, a biography of Joseph Right, Smith, oh, yeah, yeah. Which I is probably, also so... really good. I mean, the yeah. thing is, it, like, ruffled a lot of feathers, you yeah. know, because it examined, like, all the, you know, everything. Like, they didn't, you know, whitewash it at all. But, like... To me, like like Richard Bushman writes a little note, I think, at the beginning of it where he says, like, I've done all this research and I'm still like a believing Mormon. Like yeah. whatever however complicated his faith is, like he's still a member of the church and like thinks that this is you know, he finds this guy incredibly compelling and thinks that there's something divine about what he did. And like to me, I'm like, Yeah, let's like let's dig into it. Like yeah. I think that stuff is like cool, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, if I read that book, I would sort of describe Joseph Smith as like a prophet and con man kind of. And like, we've got a pretty rich history of that in America. Like, that... <laughs> Well, I mean, and you could go through every biblical prophet. It's the like, story of every they're all, religion. They're all like really kind of crazy. Yeah, but, but then at the end, a lot of them do these amazing heroic things. So it's like, I don't know. It's I don't. When I, I read don't stress it, out about it. Too when much, I read like, No Man Knows My History, I was like, "Oh, this is the story of every like religion that I've read before." But like, um, like the movies set in like the eighteen hundreds <laughs> yeah, exactly. in America. It's I was like, flourish. I was like, it's more like I kind of know these places. Right. That's just how it feels as an outsider. But it's interesting that sort of fraught relationship with journalism being in many right. ways part of the central. I won't say mythology, but the the narrative of Mormonism, which brings me to. <laughs> I don't want to fail to talk about another person who has a fraught relationship with journalism, who is Donald Trump. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Blue Apron. You're going to remember that name because it's going to change the way you make dinner. Let me give you a personal anecdote here. I enjoy dinner, but I don't really enjoy going out. I end up eating a ton and eating like three pieces of cake and it's terrible and I spend a lot of money. And I like cooking, but I don't really like shopping in advance. Well, I can't even say I don't like shopping in advance. I just don't shop in advance. So I end up not cooking. That's all changed with Blue Apron. For $10 a meal, they send you pre-portioned ingredients to make fresh seasonal recipes that everyone in your house is going to love. They give you just what you need so you don't waste a bunch of food and packaging and all the things that go along with a grocery store. And uh, if my experience is any indicator, you end up cooking more. So I want you to go to blueapron.com slash longform. You can check out this week's menu, get your first three meals free. That's three free meals with free shipping. Again, blueapron.com slash longform. You'll love how good it feels. You'll love how good it tastes. It's simply a better way to cook. Thank you, Blue Apron. You wrote this profile of Trump uh, about two years ago, two and a half years ago? Early 2014. Early 2014. So really at the low season. How did that come about? Like, what inspired you to like pitch a Trump story two years ago? <laughs> well, it was actually just because this guy who was working for him, Sam Nunberg, I had like started to get to know him just as like one of a cast of like weird Republican sources that I was cultivating. And I knew he like knew stuff and he was like plugged into other areas that seemed more relevant at the time. I and mean, he was like, hey, by the way, like I'm working for Trump. Yeah. Uh, like I, he's like a consultant. He was are doing. You, are you doing that all the time? Just sort of like meeting weird people on totally. the fringe of politics totally. and being like, 
You should email me if yes. blank. You can you take happen- them out for drinks or for yeah. dinner, and then like they kind of owe you, or they feel like they owe you, and yeah. like you just kind of keep in touch with them. You know, yeah, yeah that's the only method of like political journalism I know. Because <laughs> um, how do you do that without drinking? Uh, drink a lot of diet coke. Like I, it's, it's, seriously, I just buy buy drinks for people and drink diet up. coke. I'm okay. just like super caffeinated. That's probably, probably gives you an advantage. I, you totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, but like so I knew him, and he was like, I'm doing this stuff for. Trump. And I was like, honestly, it's funny because covering the Romney campaign, I had seen Trump through their eyes, which was like the Romney campaign all through 2012 was like terrified of Donald Trump and like had like Romney had kind of like tepidly and accepted Trump's endorsement. Didn't he but, like meet with Trump but like leave through the back door yeah, or he, something? Yes, yeah, he, he wedded with Donald Trump in Trump Tower like all the other Republican candidates at the time but then escaped out a side door so no one could take photos. <laughs> and so like for me it was kind of like the, the profile writer's like instinct kicks in where you're like oh man like the Donald in winter would be yeah. like a great story. Like yeah. that, that was kind of the story that I was envisioning. Um, and I was pretty upfront with like his people about that. I was like, nobody is taking his political flirtation seriously. Everyone at the Republican Party is mad at him. What's the deal? Like, I wanted to like, talk to him about that. And um, so that that was where it came from. But I will say when so Sam Nunberg like totally set it up for me and was like, yeah, he wants to do it. But I've never talked about this before. But the funny thing is, when I told Ben Smith and my political editor, the political editor, Catherine Miller, uh, that I wanted to do it. They were both like super down on the idea. Like, oh, really? They were like, they're like, duh, are you kidding me? Like a Donald Trump story? Like, please no. Yeah. And like, we went back and forth. And I remember I was down in DC, like just meeting with people at the time. And we were like emailing and calling back and forth. And like, I couldn't get them on board. And finally, I had to, uh, I was like, well, look, it's already set up. Like, I, I could just freelance it if you want, like, if you guys don't want it. And then they were kind of like, well, no, I mean, if you're going to do it anyway, we'll take it. Like, But it was, yeah. like, clearly, like, not no excitement at all from yeah. the editors about yeah. this. And then, you know, basically, like, through a total fluke, like, ended up staying two days at his So there was, like, there was a blizzard? Yeah, so I was supposed – so I met him in New Hampshire, and then I was supposed to fly on his plane. I was supposed to interview him on his plane down yeah. to New York. And then there was a blizzard, and then at the last minute, he was like, actually – Trump was like, we're rerouting the plane. We're going to Palm Beach to Mar-a-Lago. And, uh, and he was like, you should come along. Come along with us. And like, yeah. basically just dragged me along. Like two uh, days so, is a yeah. long time to yeah, spend Yeah, because there some, were no – oh, yeah. With was, like no events <laughs> planned or anything. It was weird because the thing is like we went down to Mar-a-Lago, which is like – it's a resort slash club, but like it's really his house too. Yeah. So like they put me up in like a, a room there – so I spent a lot of time with him on the plane. I spent a lot of time, like, we got there, we had lunch with him, and then I just kept talking to him. And then I went back to my room, and Sam was with me, too, Sam Nunberg, and we would kind of, like, walk around, and we just keep, like, bumping into Donald Trump. Like, <laughs> like, Donald would be like, oh, hey, guys, are you enjoying the, like, and then we just, like, talk to him some more. It was, like, a very weird, and the other thing is, it was January, and I was in, like, a wool suit, and it was, like, 85 degrees in Palm Beach. So I was just sweating in this, like, like, it was like a bad nightmare. Like, I just can't, like, why am I stuck at Donald Trump's house and, like, just sweat? Like, maybe this is what hell is. Like, but but it was obviously fun. Mar-a-Lago has a little bit of that quality that, like, the um, Playboy Mansion kind of has in my mind, where it's, like, (laughs) it's sprung directly out of someone's fantasy. Yes. But 
to actually live in someone's fantasy, particularly if the like it's right. not renovated and cleaned really to the top <laughs> level, it's a little strange, you know? Like it's a weird nineteen seventies version of, of like a rich, powerful guy. Absolutely. Almost. That is exactly what it is. I compare it to like Xanadu. It's like this guy is like monument to his own idea of himself. Yeah. But it's so different if that just exists as part of this guy's like public persona. Yes. But then you're like trapped inside it. It wasn't like I was being tortured, but it really was like I couldn't get a flight back to New York. I didn't know how long I was going to be there. Yeah. I was like, what if I just like am here for a week? Like, this is crazy. And he kept being like, we'll pay for everything. Like, you know, and I was like, I, I need to get out of this situation. But the thing that has been very useful about that experience was that like Watching him do his thing now as a candidate, I will say, like, on a very human level, you understand how he and, in general, like, billionaires can become just so detached from reality because they bought this bubble for themselves where, like, every human being in this bubble is just offering constant – it's like showering him with validation all the time, you know? And there were a lot of true believers, like a lot of the, his like aides, like the people in his immediate orbit, even when he wasn't there, called him Mr. Trump and like right. talked about him with this like, like as though he was a founding father. They had such reverence for him. Was and, he like, trying to woo you? Do you feel like oh, by yeah. keeping you there? Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was the whole thing. Like he was like flattering me and wooing me and like kept trying to give me gifts. And, and like, yeah. and I remember at one point I said something like, well, you know, like, my company's going to have to pay. Like, we'll get an invoice from you later and we'll pay for everything. And he was like, oh, please. Like, he, no way. Come on. Like, I bring other reporters down here all the time. We, we I pay for them. You know? <laughs> like, which, like, who knows if that's true. But, yeah, he was absolutely trying to, like, win me over and get me in his corner, you know. So, okay. So if you, like, look at the main thrust of the article. Uh, for people who haven't read the article, I just recommend reading the article. Because it, <laughs> it has a lot of subtlety and says a lot about the sort of like sad flip side of what of like what we're seeing now which is basically that Trump is like a person who just consistently needs this validation there's this sort yeah. of enormous chip on his shoulder mm-hmm. and that he's basically continually threatening to run or do various publicity things because he wants people to take him seriously which is like sort of the reason that no one's taking him seriously Uh, it's like the adult version of like a kid who brings people a bunch of like candy at school (laughs) to try to like make friends or something it's like you always kind of feel bad for that kid because it's like oh man it's sad (laughs) it's it's you both feel sort of bad for him and it is also humiliating for for this person some people have questioned on the internet whether if you had not written this story we would have not had a trump (laughs) candidacy and that you may have pushed him i'm not gonna like expose you to that cosmic radiation. Thank you. And when you've also sort of written subsequently about it, you've actually gotten through to some sources who people who were sort of in the inner circle then, I think at least one of whom sort of exited the inner circle because he had cleared the article with that you. guy, Sam Nunberg. Sam, oh, that's yeah, Sam Nunberg. That's okay, him. that's him. Wow, you keep some strange company. I do. Yeah. I know. <laughs> do you ever like, no offense to Sam Nunberg, I'm going to say, I'm not, I'm going to offend him. Like, are you ever like hanging out with someone, Sam Nunberg, and you're like, wow, you're like a dude who got pushed out of the Donald Trump circle. That's, that's not an admirable not, place in the universe right. right now. I will say about Sam, because the thing is, I wrote this follow-up big feature last month that came out yep. that examined the roots of, like, Trump's status anxiety, basically. And, yes. like, goes through his whole life. But, like, at the end of that, I have a little, like, coda to the whole thing, which is just me and Sam Nunberg. Because he got fired because of my piece, that yeah. first piece. And then he got rehired, and then he got fired again. 
he was like embroiled in this whole like mess of litigation with Donald Trump. And right. Trump was like, he's living with his parents now trying to get sober. Like it's, I mean, he let me write about all of this, yes. right? So I'm not betraying him, but like, to me, he is like totally an example of like somebody who's just like left in the wreckage of Donald Trump, like yeah. <laughs> kind of like barging through life and just like, you know, throwing aside these loyal aides and people in a circle. And I will say like, Nunberg, like, this guy still, even though after everything that's happened, like, still in some weird, like, perverse way, like, adores and worships Donald Trump. Well, that that's, like, the code of that story is kind of feels like his inner circle consists of people who, if he was not employing them, would be living on their parents' couch, which is not <laughs> flattering to the Trump campaign, and that these people, far beyond, like, having sort of a professional relationship really love him like in in, yeah. a, in a way that no, is they not do. i don't think anyone would say that like um like any of that bush inner circle loved bush i think they loved winning yeah and they and loved, maybe they, 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 loved they admired power. bush in some ways but there wasn't like the cult of personality around any other politician that i've they seen. were backing the smart horse yeah, for the most right, part like right. when you look at the operatives within that party they're people who made some sort of cunning, you know, I can ride this horse. And with Trump, it seems like anyone could be in that room. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> well, anything could happen. But it's not anyone. But the, I think the thing about Trump, and I've written about this too, is that like he populates his inner circle with aspiring Donald Trumps, you yes. know? And it's like a certain kind of like outer borough kid who made good, hairy knuckled, like has like a thick New York accent, really macho. And yeah. like, it's the kind of guy, frankly, who like buys Donald Trump neckties. And like, yeah. you know, like it's like his same consumer market demo. And those are the people who he loves to surround himself with, you know? Yeah. And it's not just Sam Nunberg. It's basically everyone in his inner circle. <laughs> right. So beyond the rest of the reporters in America, you are one of the more blacklisted uh, <laughs> reporter. Like, you're on the list of yeah. people who should not be in, even allowed into the press pen. Right. Yeah, I'm not, actually. <laughs> and your prime source is now living on his parents' couch. <laughs> and we're three months from the general election. Like, yeah. How do you cover this campaign now? <laughs> What's your strategy? Well, very differently than I covered the Romney campaign. I'm not calling up his like, you know, campaign manager yeah. and getting like the inside scoop. Although the, the thing is, like, so at the end of last year, I, I wrote I wrote a book that was like about the kind of like civil war inside the Republican yeah. Party, and so obviously, like, cultivated a ton of sources throughout the Republican Party, and like. Actually, I think the story of the Trump campaign at this point, at least one a big part of it, the political part of it, is like what he is doing to the one of the two major parties in America. And so I don't have like the three people in Trump's inner circle don't talk to me. But a lot of – I mean, first of all, I will say other people in Trump's campaign do talk to me anon sure. on, on background, anonymously. Right. But also just like the crisis inside the Republican Party now is like a central story. And like – you know, I have plenty of sources who can talk to me about that, you know. So, uh, like, now I kind of have this, like, dual uh, wave thing going on in my coverage where, like, I'm covering the, you know, the political wreckage of the Donald Trump candidacy. And then I'm also writing bigger pieces about, like, 
trump the person the human yeah (laughs) which is like in a way a much sadder story because like you see this like very small and kind of tortured man in a way like this is how i view donald trump and he's just like constantly like grasping for something that will like make him whole (laughs) yeah And, and in this case it's the presidency and like and, you know, along the way, just like constantly being subjected to one indignity and humiliation after another. The one thing I'll say about writing this most recent piece, you know, two and a half years after that first term profile is that, like, I did realize that, like, I was part of the problem and am part of the problem, not in the sense that, like, it's my fault that he ran, but, like, in the sense that I'm, like, one of the many throughout his entire life, like, sneering insiders right. who has mocked him and ridiculed him and made fun of him. And, like, obviously, he's a billionaire. Like, I don't feel any, like, moral, you know, guilt about doing that. But at the same time, like, I think that if I'm being honest with myself, that same part of me can also, when not checked, uh, sort of be projected onto, like, vast swaths of the country, you know? And, like, it's very easy to have, like, this kind of lazy classism uh, about, like, the type of people who would be excited to vote for Donald Trump. Sure. I try to kind of check myself against making those same lazy assumptions and cheap shots and easy jokes about, you know, his supporters. Well, in some ways, that sort of sense of lazy assumption, I feel like, like, if the one person who has not changed in this election is Trump. Right. Trump is the, Trump <laughs> yeah. is static. The people who, who aren't the same as we thought are the sort of pundit class mm-hmm. that had sort of said, oh, you can't win without, you know, yeah. the evangelical vote. Oh, that like basically all of these sort of soft, like I think about them like the assumptions that like the scouts make in Moneyball where they're like, oh, <laughs> totally. character, you know. Oh my gosh, I rewatched Moneyball just very recently and yeah. I had that exact thought in, yeah. that op- in that scene when Brad Pitt is just with all the old, they're like, oh, he's got a great look or yeah, like his girlfriend like, is really character. attractive or right. whatever, you know. Sort of the same, you know, Rubio, he's like young and handsome. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah totally. he is young and handsome but <laughs> but maybe that doesn't actually matter may, <laughs> maybe this, a lot of this stuff doesn't matter and when we look at what what among the, that stuff that doesn't matter the thing that sort of stands out that does matter is what this swath of america that you're talking about that's very different like we're covering that swath of america very differently when yeah. i was a kid that swath of america was like supposedly evangelical christians We've portrayed that group in many different ways, and there's no way you can say that, like, 1980s version of that group is the group that's electing totally. Trump. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and this has kind of always been a part of, like, the BS of the of the pundit class, that, like, we would take these in massive chunks of people. I mean, what evangelicals are, like, one out of five Americans. Yeah. And, like, say, this is one voting group. Yeah. And this is what they like, and this is how they vote, and these are the kinds of candidates they like. I mean, that's just – that's always been kind of, like, ridiculous, right? Yeah. Um, but I think the ridiculousness has been uh, exposed to a much larger degree. Right. I mean, one thing I'll say to, to bring this uh, interview full circle, the like the Mormon vote, yeah. I, and I've written a lot about that this year, Mormon voters are the most reliably Republican voters in America and are incredibly averse to Donald Trump. Like yes. have Utah poll after poll is showing – Trump and Clinton relatively close in in the polls uh, with like the libertarian candidate getting a ton of, you know, like I think a lot of assumptions about Mormon voters, for example, have been upended with the Donald Trump candidacy. So as a reporter, like 
you know, every day it's a new thing. I, I'm not even going to say like what Trump did today because it's going to like, right. it's going to date this. <laughs> yeah, if exactly. I like cite this, dot today, an unnamed day, <laughs> Trump said some crazy shit and it may have involved killing someone. And, you know, it's got my Twitter mm-hmm. going nuts. Yeah, sure. And I, I think predictably in a week, Trump will say something else that's like 1.1 X that statement that came out today. And I think we can sort of rely on that. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think you nailed Trump pretty well, like Trump and Mara. Like if I was going to like recommend something to understand Trump, I wouldn't be like, read what's coming out this week. I'd be like, go read that piece about when he wasn't running. But (laughs) that demographic of voters, the the people who are going to elect Trump, that's Mm -hmm. who I'm interested in how you think about covering as a reporter in this Mm -hmm. election cycle. That's like, if we're going to do the Time magazine cover for like person of 2016, it's like Trump voter. Yeah, totally. The Trump voter. Exactly. By the way, if if Time did that, Trump would go like nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's not about them. It's about me. No, but that's, uh, that is the story of 2016 in a a big way, right? Molly Ball at The Atlantic has said, the story isn't Trump the person, it's Trump the phenomenon, right? Right. It's you the fans who make me real. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But like one early piece that I did was I went to a Trump rally in Las Vegas and it was like the one of the first rallies where things started to get like a little violent like there was like a like Black Lives Matter protesters were there and there was a lot of like pushing and shoving and people were yelling Nazi salutes and yelling racial slurs at people you know like it was really ugly right yep. and I just wrote like a scene piece like I wrote like a thousand word like description of like that that the chaotic event and like no, it like blew up on like the internet and like went totally viral and, and everything because I think it confirmed like the assumptions that a certain type of reader has about Trump supporters, which like I will say like that is a strain of the Trump supporters. Like there is like a legit like neo-Nazi sure. white nationalist faction in the Trump base. They... And like technically probably there was a neo-Nazi base for like George Bush. Oh, right? Like, yeah, like, 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 the, right. Neo-Nazis have been consistently voting conservative. <laughs> like it just seems if, like a logical choice. neo-Nazis tr- are showing up to the polls, yeah. they're probably not voting for the Democrats. I mean, I agree, like, I agree, at least recently. I agree right? like – they're selling more merch than ever right now, but like it's not like the political leanings of like of American the, fascists have changed. Well, but I do think the white nationalist movement, which has been rebranded on the internet as the alt right, um, <laughs> has like gotten a lot of traction from this campaign, right? Like yeah. they like like alt right websites have exploded, right? Um, yeah. A conservative website, Breitbart, which yeah. is like was always kind of a right wing fringe kind of loony website like but was mostly like a tea party vehicle for a while has like increasingly been infected with this like strain of like white nationalism or alt-rightism you know um and like that i think is new and that is different and like that is one of the big stories of the trump phenomenon just like how how it's fed and spread the uh the rise of this kind of alt-right white nationalism but but then and a lot of it's sort of side shots like conspiracy theory sort of uh there is no truthiness in the universe <laughs> right. kind of stuff. Like it's like they've pinged a bunch of like things that are in a Venn diagram kind of <laughs> that like each in and of themselves are really a pretty unimportant. Like if you were going to be like American Nazism, I'd be like, not a big problem, but you're like American Nazism and conspiracy theories, like, mm-hmm. and like talk radio. Totally. I'd be like, Ooh, that could be a toxic brew. Like, <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And then like you have Trump actively retweeting like people yeah. on Twitter who are, you know, hashtag white genocide <laughs> people, yeah. right? Like it introduces this whole like far fringe element into the mainstream of the right. political discourse, which is like frightening, right? But let's set that aside for a second because yeah. then there's still are millions and millions of people who are saying they're going to vote for Trump yeah. who are just like feel disenfranchised. Right. right? You, almost, like, you almost have to cover the like most average, tr- like the most yes, average exactly. Trump voter is not a neo-Nazi. You're looking for <laughs> right. your Joe the plumber. Kind <laughs> exactly. Of. Yeah. Well, and that's the, th- and I think that's the mistake. Like, I'm glad that I wrote that early piece about that rally, but like, my thing is like you can't just stop there. That can't be like, and that is what yeah. the, a Trump and rally. And then there is were like. more rallies, right? With the same set kind of p- be- crazy. Because it's not always like that. Because yeah. like I, I mean, the thing is about being blacklisted by the campaign is that the only way I can go into Trump events is to stand in line with Trump voters. Yeah. Um, and so like in Iowa, I remember spending a whole lot of time before the Iowa caucuses in the freezing cold in this like two mile line waiting to get in. So wait, people choose to be in the like press pen when they could just go in as civilians? Yeah. yeah. Doesn't it seem like it's you'd rather be a civilian? It's way worse. It's so much better to be a civilian because you could go in and you can just talk to people and you can wander around. Like not only are the reporters of the press pen like restricted in terms of what they can cover. Yeah. Like, they are completely controlled by the campaign. Like, do, the, do Trump super fans know who you are when you're walking? Yeah, around? actually, yeah, and that I, is I like a, s- that. Those have been the only scary moments of yeah. this campaign. I feel like it's like a, like a little bit like if you're like at like a Springsteen show or something. It's like <laughs> some people aren't going to notice you, but like if you come across the guy who's like writing down the set list, right. That guy at the Trump show knows who you are. And I have like kind of like a distinct and not a good way head shape. Yeah, and like look, you know, like yeah. anyone on Twitter. Kind of like it, like we'll be like, oh wait, that guy. You you look like your avatar, <laughs> and I would say I'd be able to spot you in a crowd. Yeah, it's not it's not good. I mean, there have been Trump events that I've been to where it's genuinely like a little scary, especially yeah. at the ones where people have been drinking. And like, there have been many times where people like are eyeing me as I walk in, and they grumble stuff at yeah. me or like yell at me. But again, the average Trump voter, like if you're talking to him for ten minutes in a line, is like perfectly decent. You know, like I spent a lot of time just like talking to like. Like, you know, like middle-aged men and women who were like sitting there just like, it was like perfectly nice. I mean, there's a lot of uh, trash talk, I feel like, from like political reporters about that George Saunders piece in the uh, New Yorker about talking to Trump supporters. Yeah. Because I feel like, I don't know, I really liked that piece. I've had a lot of fights with (laughs) with my fellow reporters because I think that people who cover this stuff like every second of every day are like, he didn't bring any new insights to the table. Yeah, which is like. Which is like, all right, whatever. I, I really liked it. Yeah. But like, one thing I felt like he captured about the that experience of covering Trump events was that like there is a lot of discontent and you can run into like really unpleasant people but like the most of the time like they're actually really nice people and they can be really generous and they want to talk to you even if they know you're part of the liberal lamestream media or whatever like they still want to like share their opinions with you and like often they'll be like totally upfront about like oh well you're probably gonna misquote me but I'll talk to you anyway yeah and like there's something like I don't know. There's something, like, enjoyable about that. And, and I, you know, like, obviously, I think, like, Donald Trump's candidacy in a lot of ways is, like, very appalling. But, like, yeah. a lot of the people have legitimate reasons to be feel disenfranchised. And, and you know, like, whether or not Donald Trump is going to fix those problems, like, I understand their grievances, you know? Like, at some, at some basic level, I get where they're coming from. And, like, I think that that's something political reporters – 
have be- gotten better at as time goes on. Like the more they're exposed to the Trump voter, the more they realize that like the easy, like racist, crazy caricature is not totally right. This is going to be interesting to uh, listen to in 2017 from dystopian <laughs> wasteland. You can uh, visit Wait. McKay at the Gulag. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming in. This was great. Thanks for having me. And that was the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Mickey Capper. Our intern is Courtney Harrell. As always, we're sponsored by MailChimp, who makes special episodes like this possible through their generous support. Thank you, MailChimp. We'll be back on Wednesday. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.